You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, my name is Ron Friends, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. I am your host, Curtis Findlay, and I have for you today a special interview by Ron Friends. This is an interview that uh, I conducted while working on the Thor episode 16, War of the Pantheons. So this is a companion interview or companion episode to the War of the Pantheons episode. So listen to those both. Um, It's also a companion interview to the, uh, the Tom DeFalco interview, which we'll be releasing at a later date. This is for all of you Patreon supporters. Anyone who's pledging five bucks on Patreon to help us with our costs here, um, we're, as a way of saying thank you, I have these special interviews, and uh, they are just for you for now. I'll release them to the public a little later on, but for now, you get to hear them. And if you are a supporter, you can also hear some interviews from uh, Jim Shooter and Jerry Conway. They should be up still, I think, as well. Yeah, this interview with Ron was really great. He is a funny and a friendly guy, has some wonderful stories, uh, and we just get into deep detail about uh, Thor and his work with Tom DeFalco uh, and all of the creators that we uh, talk about. You're just going to have a great time listening to this one. So sit back and enjoy this interview with Ron Friends. You were working on Spider-Man before you were working on Thor together, right? Right. Is that yeah. is that where you two met? Uh, pretty much. Uh, we actually that's where we first started working together as writer penciler. Uh, we actually met uh, at a convention during a period of time when Tom was the editor of the Spider-Man books and had hired me to do Marvel Team Up. Oh, okay. And during that period of time, uh, we met at a. Uh, convention in pittsburgh and had dinner together and uh realized that we enjoyed the same kind of comics and uh uh, were you know the same kind of marvel fans fans of the same type of material so uh we had worked together and uh had already had several conversations and become friendly tom's got very much of a teacher in him when he's an editor and uh stays in touch and you know so we had a rapport that way uh, so when Danny took over as the Spider-Man editor and was looking for somebody to write, you know, Tom can tell you a little bit about how he finagled that, but yeah, that's when we ended up working together on Spider-Man, which only, unfortunately only lasted a couple of years because, uh, we were hired by Danny Fingeroth and then, uh, Jim Ousley took over and, uh, there was quite a bit of hubbub and, uh, we were then, uh, relieved of our duties on the Spider-Man titles and floated for a little while. I had a graphic novel that I was supposed to work on that ended up uh, not being something that I felt I could accomplish with any um, with, with, with any uh, acumen. I, 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 I had accepted a Punisher graphic novel with Mary Jo Duffy, and then just I, I just wasn't ready for it. I, there was no way I could have done a good job on it. So I ended up giving that back to the consternation of that editor and uh, didn't have a lot else going on. And Ralph Macchio, I had done some other work for him, some small work for him. And uh, he was looking for some fill-ins and uh, we did those two Thor fill-ins for him. And those were the, um, like the future tale of Thor? One was the future Thor. That was the second one. The first one was like a flashback to the Secret Wars. We showed the fight that Thor had with a bunch of the villains in more detail, and and uh, Tom wrote a real nice story about his Thor's interaction with the Enchantress and that whole deal. Uh, so that was uh, 
from what I understand, uh, Walt Simonson was getting ready to move off of Thor, <clears throat> and um, Sal Buscema was going to stay as the artist, but Shooter was impressed with our our uh, that villain in particular, the Secret Wars villain in particular, and was uh, interested in having us go over to Thor. Uh, and I, everybody was very uncomfortable. Tom and I were very uncomfortable with that until uh, Jim Salakrup stepped up and hired Sal to do uh, to go back on Spectacular Spider-Man. Ah, uh, so it just kind of and uh, it, circumstance yeah, so opened it, up for uh, you. He, without really knowing it, uh, Salakrup did us a huge favor yeah. by giving Sal getting Sal onto a Spider-Man title and uh, and leaving that book without a penciler. So I was able to go on with the Falco and uh, and. There you go. That's how we all. That's how it all worked out. So tell him. Tell me about this. Uh, this future Thor, Dargo. Um, mm -hmm. You uh, did you come up with his uh, his design? Yes. Yeah. Uh, with the aid of Brett Breeding uh, at the time. Uh, well, and still, Brett and I are uh, pretty close friends, and and he's a very creative guy and can help out with those kinds of things. So uh, he helped me with not only the Dargo design, but he ended up uh, years later helping me with the Eric Masterson design as well, making suggestions and uh, helping me streamline things and stuff. But uh, but yeah, we we designed that. I Tom, I don't remember really discussing those first two plots with the Falco. I think he probably pretty much wrote those himself, uh, and uh, you know I I certainly. Working with Defalco, he works very much Marvel style. So, you know, I certainly had room to uh, contribute whatever I f I felt I wanted to contribute. But he, uh, but I think those plots were pretty much full blown as fill in plots. And uh, but yes, I did design with Brett's help. I did design Dargo Thor and the Future World and all that kind of stuff. And Brett inked that uh, inked both of those fill ins as well. And Brett was sort of your uh, your anchor through this first phase of, of Thor leading up to issue 400, right? It, it, correct, yes. He, he had come on at the very tail end of the Spider-Man run. What, what uh, was your uh, uh, working relationship with Brett like? Uh, it, it's very good. I, I, I'm a big fan. I was a big fan of his coming into it. And we met at one of the Spider-Man uh, uh, summits that they had for the, uh, the Spider-Man titles when he was still inking uh, Rich Buckler on uh, Peter Parker during the Sin Eater stuff and everything. Um, and we met there and hit it off and have become good friends. And, and he, uh, you know, he's a terrific anchor. He's one of the best in the business. There's no denying that. Yeah, he sure is. Yeah, and he gives your, your work a, a definite, uh, um, like a roundness and a life to it. Um, he's, he's got a, I want to say like a, an old '60s kind of style of inking makes your your work look a little bit more uh, Kirby-ish, well, I, I guess. I don't know. I I I tend to think he's very much in the school of the Klaus Janssens and the Tom Palmers and stuff. You know, oh, yeah. He's very much. Uh, he puts a, a wonderful, uh, illustrative sheen on what I do, whether That's it's breakdowns, it is, yeah. whether it's breakdowns, or whether it's full pencils. I mean, he's uh, he's very good with the lighting, and uh, he can add lighting without taking anything away from the dynamics. In fact, adding to the dynamics and things like that. So, I've always been very comfortable working with him. He he was he came in at a time in the industry in the '80s where it was uh, very much uh, often layouts and finishes. So he was trained by guys like uh, like Bob Layton and, and and several other people to uh, and Joe Rubenstein too to be very much a finisher uh and he's very good at that and uh these days i'm not sure there's there are too many people left around that are able to do that kind of thing but uh i think it's one of the reasons the books are late all the time yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at marvel at that point i mean there were several guys and i was plugged in pretty quickly uh as a primarily a storyteller and a layout guy it wasn't until i went on spider-man that i started doing full pencils and on Thor, I kind of went through, went between really tight layouts to, to doing full pencils. Uh, around 400, when we got Joe Sinnott, a lot of people thought I would just go right to breakdowns, but Joe was doing such a wonderful job in 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 capturing the pencils that I I didn't really lighten up any more for Joe than I did for anybody else, and uh, really enjoyed that run. But yeah, well, unfortunately. Uh, you know, Brett uh, moved off the title and 
and we had a couple of issues that he did like half or some of it and uh and we had other people i actually it was an opportunity for me which was a thrill for me to work with don heck on thor right yeah uh, and his style of inking is quite different very much so uh you know yeah it's not that it wasn't noticeable but at the same time don heck being part of the early history of thor oh, yeah it's a real it was a real thrill for me because i was a big fan of his thor stuff and his iron man stuff early on so so that was cool, and um, yeah, I mean, but yeah, Brett. Brett was uh, uh, the issues he did were fantastic, and are remembered fondly by almost everybody to this day. We we the uh, the the shot from the Avengers issue where he teams up with the Captain, uh, yeah. the big pinup shot that's based on the old Kirby shot uh, is everywhere now. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever you see something with the uh, the vintage Marvel logo on it, that's one of the two or three shots of Thor that they use for those things now. So. Yep, and it's the cover of that particular volume that that they released recently. Yes, War of the Pantheon. Yeah. yeah. So when uh, when you were uh, working with Joe Sinnott, he's credited as finished art. Right. Uh, what was the decision to credit him as that rather than? You know, that's pretty much up to the the writer or the editor or how they want to. Uh, how they want to designate that kind of stuff. Uh, full pencils are rarely something that you can print off of. I mean, it, it really comes down to a matter of whether or not you're filling in the blacks or spotting the blacks. Um, because I've done looser breakdown jobs before, but for the most part, when I do breakdowns, uh, the only about the only thing I don't do is maybe some of the character in the line, maybe some of the thick thins in the line, and spotting blacks, and I leave that to the inker. And oh, okay. some inkers like Brett will go the extra, you know, will go an extra mile and and put in lighting and all that kind of stuff that might not have been indicated in the pencils. But then other, uh, you know, it, it's a finished job if somebody just comes in and inks the drawings and fills in the blacks and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it really is a matter of it's a matter of opinion. It's a matter of usually the editor establishes uh, at the beginning um, what you're going to be paid for, okay, and and how the how the pay is going to break down between the penciler and the anchor. But beyond that, it's pretty much just up to the penciler and anchor. You know how how tight you need to be or how loose you need to be. I mean, years later on Spider Girl, I was being paid for breakdowns. Sal was being paid for finishes, and Sal called me up and said, I feel really guilty taking finishes because about the only thing you're not doing is spotting the blacks, and uh, but you're doing everything else. You're doing the textures and you're, you're doing everything else. So I, I really would feel more comfortable if you were getting paid for full pencils and I just took inks. And I said, Sal, that's not necessary. I'm happy with the way things are. You don't have to do that. And he he badgered me into it. So he's Sal Basema. If he tells me I should be doing that that's what i should be doing so we came to a different arrangement and i started getting paid for pencils and and he was getting paid for inks so that's a side that um a lot of people don't realize especially with inking um people i think a lot of people just don't realize what that job actually entails and most fans i think are, are content to have that be something that goes on behind the curtain yeah um it, it, it's a mistake to read too much into the the credit because, I mean, even layouts or breakdowns can range from everything to, you know, I mean, I've seen breakdown jobs, things that were considered layouts or breakdowns that were barely more than indicate rough indications of a figure with the name of the character written on it. <laughs> and, yeah. and somebody like Brett came in and had to finish it up, you know? So... It's it's a mistake to think that you you know that you've cracked the code on what those credits mean because they can mean different things to different people and completely different things on different jobs. Right. You know, the ba basically my job as penciler is to you know take the story, break it down into a, a visual continuity, and uh, as clearly as possible. And and pencil it. I mean, I'm you know every job I've ever penciled, I'm responsible for the expressions of the characters and the design of the characters, and you know uh, the only difference in uh, levels of what I might do is I might put little X's in black areas rather than filling them in, you know that kind of thing. Uh, but for the most part, I'm considered a fairly tight breakdown guy. 
What was it like uh, following up with Simonson, <laughs> following Simonson on the, the Thor run? It um, sucked. Yeah. <laughs> it sucked. I, I followed Wald on Star Wars, and following him on Thor was, you were destined to be uh, a disappointment for some segment of your population. You know, I mean, the the, the, the fan groups who really loved what what uh, Walt were doing, which included Tom DeFalco and myself, uh, you know, they were they were bound to be disappointed when Walt chose to move off. He it was his choice. Nobody forced him off that book. I mean, he he left when he felt like leaving because I mean everybody was enjoying the work. And uh, and yeah, I did I did some conventions and some signings where you know people would stand in the back and go, "When's Walt coming back?" Oh man! And uh, somebody further up would turn to him and explain, "No, he's the new regular guy." I I know I. When's Walt coming back? You know, that kind of thing. So, uh, and I, you know, it's going to happen. I mean, anytime you follow a, a popular run, I mean, I followed John Romita Jr. We, we, you know, Tom and I followed Roger Stern and John Romita Jr. on Spider-Man. Uh, you know, and we followed Walt on Thor and it, it is what it is. You know, I followed Pat Olive on Spider-Girl. You know, I mean, you're always, hopefully, you know, if a book's up and running and you, you know, there are going to be fans. If the book survives somebody, you know, somebody leaving the title, then you're, you're going to have something to live up to. You're going to have expectations on your work and some people are going to love it and some people aren't. Uh, well, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit more about the, um, the specific issues in this. Um, you start off this, uh, you start off your run with, um, a story about Avalon and a whole cast of new characters that kind of come to come to play here with Lear. I believe that yes. that was a character that Tom and you created. Is that correct? Yeah, that is indeed correct. Yes. Now, what uh, Thor is a very different book than Spider-Man. So you have a, a, a very different style and setting and, and just the way you approach drawing all these characters. But then you add in these guys um, who are also really quite quite different than even Asgardians. Right. Uh, was that a was that an interesting job to have to try and fit in these different styles? It was. Now I was, you know, I was being a Kirby fan, being a Basema fan, uh, a John Basema fan and a Sal Basema fan, I I was very in tune with Thor. I I was very excited about uh drawing a book where big guys in capes would be punching each other, you know, that kind of thing. So I was very uh, enthusiastic about it. Uh, DeFalco, he can talk tell you more about this. He was a little uh, uh, leery because he he always saw himself more comfortable with characters like Ben Grimm or Peter Parker, you know the 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 ground level guys, and he was always able to relate to those characters a little bit, bit more. He wasn't sure he could relate to uh, to Thor well, um, and I think. Part of that, you know, was those early stories was him testing himself. Uh, the idea, I, I don't know who came up with the original idea. I know it wasn't me. There was a young lady in the office at the time, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a terrible person, and I can't remember her name, uh, who was very much into, and I, and I don't know if she was into the role-playing stuff or the uh, Society for Creative Anachronism or something like that, but she was very much into the Celtic stuff. And she was a real reference point for me on some of the, the, the Celtic-looking things that we incorporated into those characters. Uh, so she helped very much with, uh, you know, the look of Lear and the look of some of the other characters. I didn't actually design some of the secondary uh, gods of Avalon. They were designed by Tom Morgan for some uh, for Tales of Asgard backups. So I didn't even uh, have a hand in designing the secondary characters, but uh, but I did indeed uh, design Lear with her help. And um, <clears throat> so, yeah, Tom wanted to set up, I mean, that first issue was basically setting up the, uh, the this war of the pantheons that he wanted to do, uh, because Seth, of course, had been introduced before, and uh, Lear was a terrific idea. So we, we did that first, but... That was really kind of setting up the stuff that was to come, and then we took that left turn into the the three part or four part uh, celestial story, and that was Tom's way of 
totally um, if, if if he wasn't sure he could write cosmic, he was <laughs> gonna, he was just going to jump into the deep 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 end of the pool. No kidding. And and test himself. You know, if, okay, if I'm not sure I can do cosmic, what's the most cosmic thing I can do? And he chose to do this run with the Celestials, and I thought he knocked it out of the park. I mean, he uh, uh, he was very good. R Ralph Macchio is a terrific support system for for writers, especially. I mean, Ralph had done work with Mark Grunewald with the Celestials, actually incorporating them into the Marvel pantheon. Uh, so you know, he was well positioned as editor to to give Tom any support he needed. Uh, you know, Tom can speak to that a little bit more. But yeah, it was, you know, it was really, uh, okay, if I'm not sure I can do cosmic, let's do really cosmic and, uh, and go with it. And I just had a ball with it. I, uh, you know, being a Kirby fan, I was very aware of the Celestials. Being a Thor fan, I thought it was a terrific idea to make Thor the underdog. And, and we had a great time with it. Yeah, I mean, Lear, Lear was a character that I, I really enjoyed designing. I, I, I thought Brett did a fantastic job on that first issue. So I figured, you know, we were putting our best face forward. You know, we we're doing the best stuff we can out of the gate. Uh, you know, we dared to shave the beard immediately, you know, all this <laughs> kind of stuff. So everybody knew what they were in for, you know, with that first issue. I mean, I, I thought it was, it represented what they were going to be getting from that point on. And uh, we did okay. I mean, from what I remember hearing, our newsstand sales were were pretty were, were strong. You know, I don't think we sold quite as well direct as Walt had done, but uh, I uh, we were very healthy newsstand. So Ralph was very happy with us as a team. That's the only way you can survive six or seven years on a title is if your editor and the sales department are happy with what you're doing. You know, and was Ralph the editor the entire time you were on this book? Yes. Oh, that's nice too. Then, <laughs> yeah. Well, it was it was wonderfully consistent. It was uh, it was. I can't I, I can't even put into words what a wonderful period it was. I, I you know a lot of people will say you know boy I wish I would have appreciated it at the time because it was it was that good. I appreciated it at the time. I got up every day loving the fact that I was on a regular title that I I love these characters. And, you know, we were testing ourselves. It was always fun bunts and stories off of Tom. It was, you know, great fun. Uh, I mean, we wouldn't have stuck around that long if we weren't, uh, weren't having a great time with it. What, uh, when you say bouncing ideas off of Tom, now, uh, what parts of your run on Thor uh, do you like to credit as your All contributions? The All the good All stuff. All the good stuff. <laughs> No, I, it, it's 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 only a situation where Tom is is a very pragmatic writer. He, you know, his attitude is if you have to write twelve books a year, and in some, in a lot of cases, uh, not not in that early run, but in a lot of cases, uh, over our six years, six or seven years on Thor, we were even doing biweeklies over the summer. You know, but if you're going to be doing you know that many stories a year, you're an idiot if you don't take ideas from wherever you can get them. Yeah. So we would always, you know, it's a it's a a, a work uh, situation that we uh, developed on Spider Man, which is we would get into these wonderful conversations about the characters, and out of those conversations, stories would grow, and dynamics, you know, character dynamics would would uh, come uh, would would grow out of those, and and plot ideas would grow out of those, and things like that. So. You know, I was always made to feel very welcome to 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 contribute bits and 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 story ideas and and uh, you know we we'd both chop up vegetables and put them in the pot and both had a part in the soup. You know, yeah. Uh, I think it's fair to say that in those early issues, I, I probably wasn't as involved story wise because you kind of have to hit the ground running on that kind of stuff. But certainly by the time we got to you know Eric Masterson and and uh, introducing that character and, and, and kind of making the title more and more and more our own, uh, you know, I, which happened relatively quickly. I mean, we, you know, it, it was early in that run that we did this Spider-Man guest star issue that introduced Mongoose and introduced Eric Masterson and all that kind of stuff. So it, it um, you know, from pretty early on, we, we were making our 
putting our stamp on the title, I guess, you know, because it, it came out of early conversations that Tom and I had that we, you know, as much as we loved what Walt was doing and it had become this kind of Lord of the Rings fantasy thing, my favorite stories with Thor are when he's interacting with mankind. And Walt did his share of those stories as well. Walt created Jerry Sapristi, who we used uh, quite a bit in right. our stories. We used him to introduce Eric Masterson and uh, and kept uh, kept Jerry in the book for, for our entire run. So, you know, I, but I like, that's the stuff I like. I like when Thor is interacting with mankind. I know some people prefer when he's, you know, out doing cosmic stuff and, uh, and everything, but uh, we, we really did feel that we wanted that bond with humanity that make what makes thor unique from every other asgardian is his connection to mankind and his bond with humanity that odin you know uh accidentally forged by teaching him humility by creating don blake and we didn't want to bring back don blake tom is always in favor of moving forward not backward so you know we started playing with the idea of creating a new character creating Eric Masterson with the plan long term of of merging the two of them. Well, and there are definite allusions to Don Blake with his broken leg, Eric's broken sure. leg, and the cane and everything. Um, and it did feel like you were trying to bring things kind of back to the '60s with uh, a lot of the down to earth feel of of the book. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I I, I I'm not going to deny that that's you know the stuff we loved. Yeah. But as far as it, it, that necessarily, I mean, certainly, if anything hailed back to the '60s, it was it was when I started really uh, referencing Kirby a lot and and uh, doing Kirby swipes and stuff. But uh, you know, that had as much to do with it as anything. But yeah, that uh, you know, I mean, I think Tom, uh, especially once he uh, was promoted to editor in chief, I think Tom took a lot of heat for trying to roll the books back to the '60s, and and I think that was people misunderstanding you know, what he was saying, because I'm, I'm sure a lot of that perception came out of conversations that Tom would have, because uh, I know I had the same conversations with Tom, which is not, let's go back to what the character used to be, but let's, let's rediscover, let's go back and talk about what makes this character different and unique from every other character. And, you know, like, if that's with Iron Man, then it's, you know, man's relationship with technology uh, personal and societal relationship with technology. If it's Thor, it's, you know... The struggle between God and man, kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, in fact, there, there was a quote that Jerry Conway used at one point that we used for a title, uh, for two titles, it was my suggestion, which is, if men are gods, then what are gods? <laughs> you know, so it's that relationship between godhood and man and why why thor thinks we're so great you know i mean the the one thing that i think has been lost a lot in the thor character other than in the movies is his relationship with mankind he thinks people are fantastic and one of the reasons he thinks they're fantastic is we have a limited we have a such a limited lifespan you know other asgardians wonder what's the big deal with humanity because you know our lights shine so briefly we we burn so briefly and and but to thor that's the whole point yeah to thor you know we get up every morning knowing we have a limited number of days and yet we still get up and we accomplish things we build things we we write poetry we you know create art and and to him that is Every bit is amazing and worthy of respect and admiration as anything an Asgardian can accomplish right. with an unlimited time span. And, you know, we've, we've several times had the opportunity to have him interact with other Asgardians and make his point. But, you know, he thinks that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, and, and partly it's because he's lived it. Yeah, but but it really is just a, a it's a matter of respect. I mean, I think he respects us in ways that we don't even respect ourselves. You know, I mean, God knows we're all guilty of wasting time. You know, but but uh, you know, just think how much time an Asgardian can waste if it, if he wants to. You know, that kind of thing. So. Oh, and they do, and a lot of them have that kind of attitude. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that is great about Tom's writing that I really love is the slow builds that he has through his arcs and like uh, the stuff that he sets up 
one issue may not be revisited or slowly built over like two years or so. Right. So you have, um, when you created Eric early on in your run, was it always with the atten- intention that he would become the Thor? Yes. Because that doesn't happen for a few years later. Yes. Now we wanted, uh, the, the whole plan was to have uh, the, the reader uh, relate to Eric and through Thor get to know Eric and like Eric, uh, right. and ca- hopefully care about Eric, so that at the time they're merged, one, you're going, yeah, Thor, save him, for crying out loud, and two, that you have the merger of two characters that you've, you already care about. You know, I mean, it, it, we didn't just want to bring him in as the MacGuffin that, oh, this is Thor's new identity, and let Thor tell you who this guy is. We wanted you to get to know Eric and his living situation and his his relationship with his son and his relationship with his ex and his relationship with Susan Austin and everything. We, we wanted him to be a full-blown character and, you know, get to the point. One, he was a wonderful vehicle for the reader to go along on some of Thor's adventures. And and two, we, we needed the reader to give a crap about who this guy was and admire him for because he had he had chutzpah you know i mean he saved jerry's life that's how he injured his leg and he went along uh i know we're only we're not supposed to go as far as the black galaxy but he went along in the black galaxy saga right because he felt thor needed somebody to watch his back that's amazing (laughs) you know that that's that's a cool guy. It is, know? yeah. It, it, he actually thinks that he can contribute something if it's only just to watch Thor's back. I mean, uh, I like the guy a lot. I uh, It was one of my first uh, experiences with creating a character with Tom from the ground up. And, you know, neither Tom or I was a dad. My, my brother was a, a single father at the time and had a young son. So a lot of it was observation, you know, was more observational writing on my, on my part and on Tom's part. Uh, so we didn't share that experience, but pretty much everything that's in, that, that's a part of Tom, uh, of that's a part of, uh, Eric is, is some part of either Tom or myself. You know, I mean, I think it's fair to say that if you liked Eric Masterson as a person, you'd probably like Tom DeFalco and <laughs> probably, you'd probably get along pretty well with me too. You know, that kind of thing. So, one of my favorite aspects about the uh, about Eric's character is that he's a single dad. Yeah, I think that that uh, is such a refreshing take on a superhero. Um, you get superheroes who are parents, like you know Reed and Sue and that kind of thing. But the, the single parent um, aspect of it was quite uh, quite special. And that I, that actually, you know, to refer back to one of your other questions, that might actually have been something that I brought to the table. Uh, I don't know for sure, but I, I know Tom and I had early conversations about, you know, how best to have Eric reflect aspects of Thor. Thor was a warrior. Don Blake was a surgeon. So we wanted to go with, okay, Thor's a warrior. Eric's a builder. You know, he, he creates the, he builds buildings and Thor knocks them down. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we wanted to have that kind of, uh, uh, of juxtaposition for the character. Uh, Thor was always shown as being right-handed. I made sure that Eric was left-handed. Um, and the son thing, we just thought it would be, you know, and, and I can't really speak to who came up with the idea, but we, we deliberately did that to speak to the relation, something that, that should always be the core, of the, in our opinion, of the Thor book, which is Thor's relationship with Odin. You know, oh, okay. as as powerful a character as Thor is, he's still a son. He's still a relatively young Asgardian, and he's still, you know, the the prince. And and his his relationship with his dad is a huge part. Was always a huge part of that book. And uh, so we thought it would be interesting, as you know, as, as we developed Eric, that he would also have a son, and it would force Thor to see things from a different point of view. And it would, you know, we'd be able to explore those father son bonds from both, both directions. And that, that appealed to us because, you know, like I said, neither Tom nor I was a single dad, but we were both sons. (laughs) So we got that. 
And uh, so it was uh, that was part of it. And it was my idea. I, I remember this specifically. The reason that Kevin Masterson is named Kevin is because of do you remember the TV series The Greatest American Hero? Yes. Ralph Hinckley had a son named Kevin who in the course of the series disappeared. <laughs> by, by the time Ralph and Pam got married, Kevin wasn't even mentioned. Uh oh. <laughs> and it was like holy mackerel. So when Tom and I decided to give Eric a son, I said, Tom you need to promise me that we will not lose track of Kevin. And <laughs> to name him Kevin as a reminder to never, ever, ever lose track of him in the course of these stories just because it's inconvenient to check in or everything. If this is going to be part of Eric's life, then it's going to be an integral part of Eric's life. Right. And uh, so, yes, that was, and part of the soap opera drama, of course, was the custody battle with his with, with Marcy and all yeah. that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Well, and you end up, um, he becomes so integral, you use him, he becomes Thunderstrike <laughs> eventually in the future. Well, now you're here. really getting ahead of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, we don't need to go quite there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, tell me what it was, what was it like um, having to draw an enormous space battle? Uh, I'm talking about the battle with Seth on Asgard. Uh, it was, it, you know, you you mentioned it uh, earlier, and it's absolutely true. I've talked about it in in, in other interviews. It's a it, for me, and I I can't speak for other illustrators, but for me, it was a completely different animal. You don't draw a Spider-Man story the same way you draw a Thor story. No, you and sure don't. And you know the, the Thor is a is a it's a bigger stage. It's a it's a wider scope. It's the difference between a story done by Steve Ditko and a story done by Jack Kirby. You know, so whereas a Spider-Man story could function with nine panels on a page and it's very intimate and and it's very character oriented. Uh, a, a Thor story is much more cosmic spectacle, and you you open up the frame and you open up the screen, and you do you know panoramas, and you show scale, uh, and uh, you, you the characters should look godlike. You know the characters should look larger than life, and so it was. It took a little getting used to, but again, being a you know being a, a John Buscema fan and a Kirby fan and everything, I was very. That was something I was kind of looking forward to was was the the fantastic elements of uh, of Thor, and uh, so I embraced the heck out of it. I, I really enjoyed it. I the, when we would go to the to Seth's dimension with the the Black Pyramid and yeah. the armies around it and all that kind of stuff, I got a big kick out of that kind of. Uh, that was you know that was uh, me getting to put on my Kirby hat and uh, and really indulge my love of that type of storytelling. So um, I, I can't say I was, I, I was intimidated early on, but it, it's something that I, I wildly embraced. It really felt like, wow, I'm working for Marvel comics and I'm doing the money you know, and, <laughs> and I get to do, you know, Thor picking up giant war machines and throwing them and things like that. It was just a, a heck of a lot of fun. Now does that, uh, it's more time consuming though, correct? It can be, sure, yeah. sure, sure, yeah. yeah. How, uh, what's your pace like? Or what was it like in the 80s? It might not be the same now. Well, it, it, it depends on the deadline. I mean, you, you work to the deadline. Uh, I cannot deny that there were times, uh, Fabian Nicieza one time referred to me as uh, Ralph Macchio's monthly Torquemada, <laughs> which, uh, you know, suggesting that, uh, that there were times when I tortured poor Ralph uh, so he was, he was very happy with the work, but, uh, there were times that I was, you know, right up against the deadline or, or real tight against the deadline. And I think that's one of the things that actually, uh, early on, I don't know if that was as much a problem. I think that was one of the things that Brett had a problem with, which I deeply regretted, uh, you know, losing him for that reason. No. But, uh, but it, you, you know, you go through phases where you're in a rhythm and everything's coming in on time and everything's great. But then either personal issues come up or you get sick or you something like that. Or, or an issue, a particular issue, uh, you know, requires a whole bunch of other things to be designed. Or, you know, and, and frankly, I'll tell you, after 30-some years in this business, 
occasionally it's still a matter of, you know, you sit there and you stare at the board and you draw a blank. Yeah. It happens. Um, You can't afford to have it happen too often, but it happens. And some guys fight their way through those kind of blocks. Uh, Other guys will put their feet up and read a magazine, you know, and just wait it out. Uh, I'm more the latter than the former. Uh, when Pat Olive and I shared studio space, Pat was a, was a work it through, you know, a bang his head against the board until it came type of guy. And I was more of a put my feet up on the desk and read time magazine kind of guy. So it was, it was an interesting dynamic, but, um, you know, I, I wouldn't have survived as long as I have in this business if I wasn't able to hit a deadline you know i mean you'd have to ask ralph exactly how big a pain in the ass i was <laughs> i'll make sure but, to ask him that yes if you get the opportunity i'll be i'll be interested to hear the answer. <laughs> but he was he was always fantastic about it I, I i thanked him many many times for being the kind of uh supportive backup that he was and what he would say to me at the time was what mattered to him was the final product and as long as the final product was was what we were turning out, then he was, you know, he saw that as being part of his job was to, you know, to support us as best he could, which, you know, you don't hear that kind of talk from editors all that often. So it was a, it was a real, uh, it was very humbling. And uh, I always tried to do my best work for Ralph because of that. Yeah. There's a story later on um, after, like around issue 406 or so, where you take the, the cast to Wondergore. Yes. Now, that's, uh, that again proves another uh, level of uh, creativity because now you have all of these um, animal humanoid characters. Um, tell me a little bit about drawing characters from Wondergore. Okay. Um, well, one of the reasons we went there is uh, in that early issue when we introduced Mongoose. Mongoose actually appeared in one panel of one of our Spider-Man stories. Really? We did an issue later in our run where he fought, uh, Spidey fought uh, the Absorbing Man and Titania at the airport. And it was when they were setting up this uh, Masters of Evil thing and what Tom, the reason Tom had Crusher Creel and Titania at the airport is they were picking up somebody who was intending to join their, the Masters of Evil that was going on in Avengers at that point. Okay, And in that issue, there's like one panel where the person they're supposed to meet gets off his plane and they're not there to meet him because they're fighting Spider-Man. They're tearing up the airport fighting Spider-Man and he disappears into the crowd. And it's a figure wearing a, you know, a big hat and a trench coat, but you see a silhouette and you see the razor sharp teeth. Wow. And that was Mongoose. Okay. Mongoose was originally conceived to be a Spider-Man villain. We were, you know, I I had designed him as a, uh, as a Spider-Man villain and we never got around to doing him in Spider-Man. And... So we said, well, you know, you just you want to do Mongoose? And that's why, that's one of the reasons why Spidey guest starred in that issue was oh. because Mongoose had been originally designed for Spider-Man. So, uh, but then when we started thinking about him as a Thor villain, it started to make a certain amount of sense to us that he would have been a product of the High Evolutionary. Right. And, you know, you when you have the whole Marvel sandbox to play in, you know, the High Evolutionary and Wondergore were originally introduced in Thor. So, you know, let's go. Let's, yeah. Let's take, you know, wow, there's a chance you're not going to pass up, you know, to, to go to that corner of the Marvel Universe. You know, it was it was great fun. It was great fun. I I especially liked, I, I we had talked about, you know, at around the time when um, we were developing, it was before we left Thor, but it, it all got pushed aside because we were developing Thunderstrike and everything. Uh, those we had an idea for these for these new gods that we had created, Nobilis and and Juvan and uh, I forget what the the woman's name was. But and, and we had mu- further mutated Tagar, right? And uh, I it, I we had a lot of ideas 
where to take that and what to do with it and stuff. I believe Roy Thomas did something with it after we after we had left, but uh, you know it, it was a lot of fun. I you know the idea of, of mutating Tagar further and, and uh, having some fun with him when he was a character that had really been around for so long and been such a you know uh, an early core concept with the high evolutionary i enjoy doing those characters immensely um i don't think i really created or featured any other new men that hadn't already been established but uh but drawing the the evolutionary uh, high evolutionary himself and uh you know uh mutating tagar further and creating those new immortals was uh, just a hell of a lot of fun i I that I was always happy with that design. I don't, I'm not even sure where the design came from. I don't really remember if I had referenced anything in particular. But the design for that ship that he uh, that the high evolutionary uses, mm-hmm. uh, I was always very happy with that. It was a pain in the butt to draw, <laughs> but I was always very happy with the design. Yeah, it sure looked cool. That's for sure. Thank you very much. Uh, tell me a little bit about Earth Force and their creation. Earth Force was something that I created in uh, art school. Okay. Uh, they were originally called the Aton Trio, A-T-O-N, which was the Egyptian sun disk was called the Atom. And uh, so I had created these characters. And originally they were, as, as many people do when they're young and, and goofy, uh, they were, uh, the characters were based, I was Skyhawk. And uh, Earthlord and uh, uh, Wind Warrior were both uh, based on uh, friends of mine from art school. Wow. Uh, And uh, so that was an idea that was sitting in a folder somewhere. And since it was based on on gods, on Egyptian gods, it uh, seemed like uh, it could be a natural fit for, uh, for Seth. So... We set about, you know, creating characters for them. Uh, the the fact that um, the the first names are the same as my friends, Kyle and Pam. Uh, originally, uh, Pam's character's name was Tempest, but there was a Tempest in the new Doom Patrol at the time we were introducing Earth Force, so we changed it to Wind Warrior. And uh, and the reason we didn't use Eton Trio was Tom didn't feel anybody... You'd have to constantly explain what Eton meant. <laughs> right. But that's... If you remember, uh, they had... The, the sign that they had been transformed, that they had been changed, was they had the sun disk in, their, in the palm of their hand. Oh, yeah. And that's what they would use to change. So that came from Eton Trio. That was part of the original idea. And uh, so, yeah, those characters pretty much full-blown. You know, Tom came up with, uh, Tom and I together came up with the idea of uh, the one being a a cop and the one being a a businessman. What was really awkward for me was the fact that these guys, (laughs) that these characters were based on friends of mine. (laughs) Right. Is that Tom came up with the idea that Pam had attempted suicide after losing her kid. Oh. And my friend was pregnant at the time. Oh, and no. I, I just felt very, very awkward about that, you know. Uh, I mean, she had a healthy kid, and he's now a full-grown adult and all that kind of stuff. And everybody's fine. But <laughs> it's a very, you know, creepy feeling at the time uh, for, for those characters. But um, but I always I enjoyed those characters. I, at one point, had done a redesign on them that I never got around to executing. Because uh, I always, uh, I thought they were a, a dynamic group, you know, and uh, and Tom even did a couple of backup stories with Herb Trimpey that involved those characters and everything. So, uh, but yeah, that but that was yeah right out of my sketchbook from uh, from art school. Yeah. That's awesome. And have uh, have other people used these characters since? Like, have they shown up over the years? It's possible. I really, I'm not aware of it. If they have, I'm not aware of it. I know they appeared in you know the marvel handbooks and stuff i think even as late as the loose leaf one that keith pollard did i think the characters were represented in the marvel uni- the handbook of the marvel universe they may well have shown up somewhere else i don't know they may have been killed three times for all i know at this point to tell you the truth curtis so. well let's get bendis on the phone and uh tell him <laughs> to do a guardians of the galaxy team up here 
I, I have always enjoyed, you know, I, I think they were an interesting team. I like the fact that uh, uh, Winston Manchester was a, uh, was a pain in the butt, you know, that he wasn't a very likable guy. Yeah. And that uh, Kyle was a stand-up cop. And, uh, and, and, and Pam didn't know what the hell was happening half the time. She didn't want to be there. You know they got it. They got tied up in this whole war with Seth. They were manipulated by Seth, and they got all tied up in this. And they ended up siding with Thor, of course. And well, and that was an aspect I really liked it for characters. Like you don't usually in these kind of superhero stories, like they get these powers and they get an overwhelming um, uh, desire to either be good or to be evil. But she right. she just ran away. She bolted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was in, such in the midst an... of it. She just was overwhelmed and bolted for a period of time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Winston was uh, when I was a child. My next door neighbor. Uh, when I, when I was born, I was a very chubby baby, and our next door neighbor, um, uh, Mr. Tom Woodring, uh, felt I looked like Winston Churchill. <laughs> and my the entire time we lived next door to him uh, in my formative years, he always called me Winston. So that was uh, that was a nod to the fact that Skyhawk was originally based on art school Ron, you know that kind of thing. Nice, so, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, they were fun characters. I, I mean, you're going to hear me say that word a lot, fun, fun, because that's what we were always shooting for. And uh, you know, I mean, I, 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 the it was a sequence of Thor 400 that. that I always appreciate in a movie when every like Civil War would have been the last one that comes to mind, where the characters are all used effectively. Right. And Tom is really, really good at that. He is a structure guy, and he is a plot guy, and he is really strong in those areas where everybody's there for a reason. Every plot thread is brought together. This is kind of something you were, you referred to earlier. Is that you know he will do the slow build. He enjoys playing with mysteries, sometimes to the despair of our audience. But he 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 will play the long game, and he's always makes sure that every character is there for a reason, and every word that is spoken means something. Yeah, and I think one of the big examples of that is Black Knight in in this story. Yes. Um, I was reading these issues, and I'm like, Black Knight has no purpose being here. He just kind of is like, oh, I'll just tag along. And and for um, issue after issue, he, ha- he he the only thing he does is remind the audience that he's like slowly dying or something like he's that. Be- he's becoming the bl- he's becoming yeah. Black Blade or something. And then finally in issue 400... We f- we realize what his purpose is, but it took that long. Like it was He's the several weapon, issues. Man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was freaking genius. I really did, because I mean, I was the same way. I was enjoying drawing the Black Knight. I was I was uh, annoyed that he was wearing that extra uh, vest that was supposedly helping him function and everything. Right. But uh, yeah, when we got to four hundred and we're and and we're talking about the plot for that and everything, it's it's uh, you know. Well, I, that's what we can use him for. He's he's finally he's the ultimate weapon to kill Seth. You know that kind of thing. So I mean, it it really does. It kind of all dovetails, and that's one of the things that that, that annoys me with some of the current storytelling is that the stories never end. Yeah, one big epic always rolls over into the next big epic, and everybody's afraid of endings. But writing endings, writing climaxes, and having everything pay off. And, and and having all the characters resolve things, that's one of the most fun things in the world to execute. It really you know, is, yeah. It, it, I mean, if, yeah. if done correctly, that's the payoff. I mean, in every, in every sense of the word, that's the payoff for the audience. So let the story end, you know? I mean, one of my favorite things was, and, and it might have even been something I liner noted, I don't know. I mean, at this point... You know, I don't remember who threw what vegetables into the pot anymore. I honestly, Tom and I really honestly do not know for sure at all anymore. But there is a line at the end of Thor 400 that I always enjoyed where the young young Asgardian kid is talking to Heimdall and says, We did it. We defeated death. (laughs) 
And he said, we defeated Seth. And he looks out over the battlefield, and there's all these bodies laying around. And he goes, but death? <laughs> death has reaped a bitter harvest indeed. You yeah. Know that? And uh, so I, I, that is something that, uh, you know, these, these, when you tell these stories, I mean, if you don't keep it tied in to the humanity of these characters, if you don't have a, a connection with the characters that you, you give a crap what happens to them, then, what, then there's no point to it. There's no point at all. And it, it, you know, it disturbs me sometimes with modern storytelling where when the characters become so realistic, quote-unquote, where they all have feet of clay and they're all bastards and they're all making bad decisions, it really starts to undermine your ability to relate to these characters or to care about what happens to them. Right. And that's my biggest concern with, you know, with epic storytelling. I mean, you need to have at least a few characters that you want to see survive. And, uh, I mean, I was watching a program last night. I don't know if you follow the librarians. No. Uh, Noah Wiley is one of the actors in it. And uh, they, they've been running the series now for, I don't know, it's been on for two or three, four seasons. And they did the big season finale. I was absolutely sure that Noah Wiley's character was going to die. It just seemed predetermined that that's where the story was heading and that's where it was but you know spoiler alert to anybody that hasn't watched it yet and has it on their TiVo he doesn't <laughs> the the other characters actually serve the function of coming up with an alternative another way other than him sacrificing himself and it was such a joy to watch nice because you get so used to oh this is when this character's going to die I mean you know through the walking dead and and I mean, well, you look at Marvel now or DC now, and killing characters is is ludicrous now. Everybody just kind of shrugs. Yeah, he's always going to be back. Well, the most recent Star Wars. Exactly. It doesn't matter how epically you kill a character, even if that writer intends for him to be dead forever, he's not going to be the only writer till the end of time. You know, somebody's going to bring this character back. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's lost its shock value. Yeah, I mean, Eric Masterson's one of the few characters that has stayed dead. <laughs> so far. So far. Yep. Uh, knock on wood, yes. You know, When we were given that opportunity to do the Thunderstrike miniseries, Tom and I had a long discussion about that. But, you know, when you get to into your 40s and 50s and you realize, you know what? And I, I'm sure you know this, Curtis, on some level, dead people don't come back. Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm aware of that. That <laughs> is a part of life. And, uh, you know, we briefly talked about the possibility of bringing Eric back, and it just felt like such a cheat that we didn't want to do it. Well, good for you for uh, having those uh, <laughs> sticking to your guns there. If anybody ever demands it, I think we have we have a way of doing it. It's a little less of a cheat, but... Uh, but I, you know, it's not something that I'm dying to ever execute, you right. know, you know, but, uh, I, I certainly, if anybody else ever decides to bring him back, I, I hope it's as, uh, as good an idea as the one we've discussed because you know? I, otherwise I would never want to see it, you know. Now, um, Hercules became a guest star in the book for quite a while. Yes. What was uh, the, the thought about bringing him into the story? He's a really neat character. And some of, uh, I think it was Tom. I'm going to go ahead and, and give Tom the nod on that. You know, some of his favorite stories, uh, Thor stories, were those classic stories where Hercules showed up, he and Thor were hanging out together, and uh, remember he was fooled into signing Pluto's contract and Thor right. had to go into Hades and, and uh, fight his way out. Uh, you know, those were some of Tom's favorite stories. I loved uh, when Jerry Conway brought Hercules in uh, during that period of time with Basema where they met Fire Lord and all this. And he was, you know, he's a fun character, and he was bouncing around the Marvel Universe at that time. So, uh, you know, I, it, it, it occurred to us, now that Thor had a, a secret identity, basically, that it could be a really interesting way to kind of upend Eric's life and all that and, uh, you know, kind of have uh, the, the most ridiculous roommate on the planet. Type. <laughs> uh, I, I enjoyed that, the one scene where Eric comes home and, 
he has Susan and Kevin with him and he opens, he unlocks his door and opens his door and Hercules is in there with like half a dozen girls and he just <laughs> slams the door. door. He closes the door slowly and, and says, come on, I'll buy you lunch. And he's thinking, you know, I'm going to come back. I'm going to turn into Thor and I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to break his head. I'm going to break his head. So, yep. it, uh, you know, it, he was wonderful comedy relief and, and that had a lot to do with it. Um, I mean, but he also ended up tying into the Black Galaxy stuff that we will talk about some other time. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, he's a wonderful, wonderful character. Marvel's version of Hercules is one of my favorite characters in in fiction. I mean, I I just love the guy. You just want to hang out with that guy, you know? Yeah, I I feel like when the first Thor movie came out, they gave Thor a very Hercules type of sort of Earth personality he was kind of the the goofy bumbler um but at the same time had this uh tried to be the big god as well right um which thor didn't really have in the comics he was well, stan, stan thor was actually a bit dour at times uh which juxtaposed well with his hercules you know with right. with, uh, with hercules i was actually here is in one of my fantasy scenarios i was hoping that um that uh, dwayne johnson's hercules movie would have been a bigger hit because if that would have been a huge hit it would would have been so cool to me if they then would have signed dwayne johnson to play marvel's hercules yeah right in a thor right and have it be basically okay he did hercules back in the halcyon days and this is the same guy but now it's you know now it's current day and he's the same guy, and he's uh, you know he's a hard drinking uh, party guy, you know that kind of thing. And I think that would have been that would have been awesome. That yeah. would have been hilarious casting to have uh, Chris Hemsworth interacting with him as Hercules. But uh, yeah, oh well, stuff <laughs> was not to be, and now he's going to join the extended DC universe. So what are you going to do? Yeah, I guess. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've always enjoyed that character uh, in all of his different forms, and. Uh, you know, it was it was also fun to draw the original Kirby outfit and all that. But uh, you know, I mean, but but I, I've I've actually had had a chance to handle Hercules in a couple of different versions and variations because uh, we were able to use him even when he was showing up in the Avengers. We were still able to have him uh, show up in Thor and and cause some trouble. And uh, God is a fun character, mm -hmm. and you know that's another character that you know they kind of turned into uh, you know a more serious dour character and stuff and uh, I, I i don't know fun where's the fun <laughs> where indeed okay one last question for you then uh, i'll let you go because we've been talking for a while now um you have a there's a two-part uh new warriors uh issue in your run there and uh, where where they battle juggernaut right and that was kind of an introduction to new warriors Yes, it was. Um, was that before the series had actually hit? Absolutely. So, yeah. uh, actually, Tom, uh, Tom and I created the New Warriors. Tom, that was when Tom I, was either executive editor or editor in chief, and it was always intended to be developed and then go into its own series. But uh, you know, he wanted the, he was developing it. I designed uh, Night Thrasher. And uh, I am the one guilty of the Nova costume that nobody likes. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> the red that one. Was my fault. I did that, and I, I can't blame anybody else. The red, the red Nova costume with the uh, the cross shirt. Everybody hated it. Yeah, even Mark Bagley hated that outfit. <laughs> uh, but uh, yes, uh, that was uh, we, we developed. A, he he put the team together, and I designed the characters that needed to be designed. We introduced them in Thor. But it was, uh, I think the plan was always for them to, to get their own book, depending on the uh, response. And uh, not, not, not that in any way Mark Bagley owes me his career, because he is an incredibly talented guy and arguably far more successful than I've been in this industry. But um, when Danny Fingeroth was trying to decide who to hire to do New Warriors, uh, I had done covers for some annuals that Bagley had done artwork for, 
And I, I was strongly suggesting Bagley for that. I said, you, you need to hire this Mark Bagley. That's, I, he'd be terrific for a, for a team book like this. And, uh, and Danny was always big on soliciting everybody's opinion and discussing it with you and, you know, uh, asking you why you thought that and, and all this kind of stuff. So I, I have no proof that Dan only hired Mark because of my say so. <laughs> I was in there pitching for him. You know, I was saying that that's the guy you need to get this guy. And, uh, and, and the fact that Danny did, damn it, I'm going to take credit for it. Yeah, okay. Because I enjoyed that, the, the, especially the uh, the first real run they had of the New Warriors. I thought that was a, a really solid book. I enjoyed the heck out of that. Yeah, Fabian and Mark did a wonderful job with those characters. Thanks, Ron, for uh, talking with us today. And uh, I'm sure all the listeners will appreciate you taking the time to uh, to share this wealth of knowledge here about Thor. <laughs> Well, it's been my pleasure, Curtis. And as you as you read more, if you're interested in talking more and getting more into the uh, the, the later part of the run, uh, it will be my pleasure to speak with you again. It's it's always a pleasure to talk comics. Yes, we will do that for sure. Thank you. 